The Fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, helping customers make the switch to solar for savings, energy security, and tax incentives. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. Later in the show, we'll bring archivist and local historian Cliff McCarthy to the studios to explore some of the figures of local black history we really should know more about. And our resident wordster, Emily Brewster, senior editor at Merriam-Webster here in Springfield, answers a listener question about the waning usage of your welcome. Sure thing. <laughs> but first, let's head back to Williams College Museum of Art with curator Destiny Fillmore to see how this new exhibit, Emancipation, ties into the Black Panther Party with pink Hello Kitty and redacted documents. We're at the Williams College Museum of Art at the new exhibition, Emancipation, with the curator of the exhibition, Destiny Fillmore. What are we looking at now? So right now, you're surrounded by pink glittery walls. Yes. <laughs> and these really amazing um, hand-drawn graphite drawings um, that are replicating documents that Sadie Barnett received when she and her father, Rodney Ellis Barnett, um, petitioned the government for the files that the FBI took out on her father. Why did they take them out on her father? Because he was a founding member of the Black Panther Party, I believe, in Compton, uh, California, and she and her family were surveilled for many, many years, and under the Freedom um, of Information Act, they were successfully able to petition, and they received a document that was 500 plus pages long, with just all of this information about their family. And so what she's done, sort of as um, an act of mourning and remembrance, is blown those documents up, and she has uh, replaced the redactions that exist in the actual documents with this high film aesthetic. There is holographic, like sticker step there's Hello Kitty and uh, pink and spray paint and in these bows which um, when you talk to Maggie she'll share that um, this is Sadie's way of pissing off J. Edgar Hoover's ghost I thought he would like pink too you know uh, maybe <laughs> but, <laughs> but I do think you should redact everything with Hello Kitty uh, you know I, I, do, I think so too it, it's, it's much cuter um, then if you ask Marita she'd share that this was Sadie's way of sort of using her childhood interest in Hello Kitty and glitter as a superpower to protect her father and her family mm. uh, from the gaze of the state. And right in the center of the room um, is a little coffee table with some really lovely rose um, laser cut pieces inlaid on the bottom and these gorgeous little cute pink sparkly surveillance cameras, which are non-operable, <laughs> um, but they are staring right at us and it makes you a little uncomfortable to, to be in what feels like a domestic space um, and to encounter these cameras. But then also in order to get into the museum, you've been looked at by at least 10 cameras already. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's really fascinating to think about like the tension between knowing you're being surveilled and not knowing you're being surveilled. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's all that Even play Even when here. it's made pink and pretty. Even when it's pink and pretty. <laughs> and, and then these, these don't work, but I think it would be interesting if they did, like what the feed would look like. Yeah. I love seeing people come and look at Sadie's work. And, and the final element I'll point to is this um, glass of fresh red roses, which is very atypical for museums. Museums are a little um, reluctant to um, <laughs> invite living organisms into the space because they could have little critters and friends on mm. them that eat away at our things. But these are okay because they're red roses um, and they've been pe 
pesticided uh, down, and so they're, they're fine. Um, but, but it is really great to, to be able to have these sort of living, um, fresh, weekly replaced roses in the space. One as like a way to, again, signal this commemoration and memorial for the wrong that was done to this family, but also because perhaps of the associations with the, the Communist Party that, that roses have. And so it's all feeling very much connected to this act of redaction and re-sort of imagining and considering these, these harmful practices by the Federal Bureau of Investigation um, onto Sadie Barnett and her family. The Department of Justice seal with the Hello Kitty bow on it is making my day. Yeah, yeah. And I just wanted to stop by this case that it's sort of right in the middle of the room. And this is a collection of materials that we borrowed uh, primarily from the Chapin Library of Rare Books, which is right across the street. Our colleague, Ann Peel, um, was incredibly generous when Kevin Murphy and I went to her and asked, what materials do we have here that are connected to the history of enslavement? And it turned out um, we had a bounty of materials, including a copy of the Emancipation Proclamation from 1863. And I believe that we're the first venue to show a copy, which is such an amazing opportunity for us to be able to give our, our public. We also have a copy of Frederick Douglass's 1852 oration, where he asks, what to the slave is the 4th of July? And one of my favorite pieces, sort of in the whole show, actually, is this little engraving of Ellen Craft, who was an enslaved woman who emancipated herself by disguising herself as a white man, um, and white man. as a disabled white man, <laughs> um, who was being attended by uh, her husband. Um, and they went on a train from Macon, Georgia, and made their way all the way uh, eventually to Boston for stopping in Philadelphia, where they established themselves in this community, and they shared their story and became the target of slave hunters or slave catchers um, when the 1853 Fugitive Slave Act was passed. So it's such a discreet little object. You kind of wouldn't look at it and you wouldn't know who it is. You might even pass it by just thinking it's another portrait of a man in a top hat, but it is the exact opposite of that. This is someone who used her skills as a seamstress and also the, the conditions of her birth being uh, the fact that her enslaver was also her father and that she very much resembled her white family members. She used these things to emancipate herself and also her husband, which is just such a feat to do and in, in, at this time, and it's not completely unheard of, but still miraculous, none the same. It's called Emancipation. You have a mm -hmm. copy of the Emancipation Proclamation, mm -hmm. but you have a bust of Abraham Lincoln that yes. is a special bust. Yes, it is a special bust. It was made by Sarah Fisher Ames, um, who was someone who had a very complicated relationship with Abraham Lincoln, <laughs> uh, a very close relationship with Abraham Lincoln that some might speculate to have been an affair with <laughs> Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> and I, I won't say yes or no to that, I don't know, but I, I do know that she's created one of the most faithful and delicately rendered sculptures of him while he was still living. And this bust is very special um, and that it came to us through her daughter who married a Williams professor and ended up landing here in Williamstown and donated the bust later to the Williams College Museum of Art and that its two other siblings exist in sort of public facing spaces. One of them I think is in the Capitol building of, of, of the United States in Washington DC. And so we're the only private collection or a museum collection that, that has that bust. Um, so it's, it's a really gorgeous example of a 19th century woman sculptor working in marble, but very interesting bust, very interesting story. Mm. Uh, <laughs> uh, 
Um, and it's one, one of um, two examples of Lincoln being rendered in um, a sort of three-dimensional sense in this exhibition. The other is on the other side of the gallery by Jeffrey's work, um, and it's a smaller version of the Thomas Ball Memorial that was also um, meant to celebrate emancipation. And the, the story goes, or the, as I understand it, is that a group of um, freed African Americans had actually raised the funds to have this memorial created, but that they didn't like the design. I wonder um, why. I wonder yeah, why. why yeah, they like the maybe because there's this like stooping black figure um, who is almost like being petted by Lincoln, and in this very paternalistic um, uh, sort of gesture, and it is part of a, a, an unfortunately ubiquitous uh, visual culture of Lincoln being positioned as this emancipator and as the person responsible, solely responsible for the freeing of African Americans from enslavement, which isn't really the full story. But yeah, he's sort of petting this person, they're chains, they're stooping down, um, and it's it's really not a very dignified image. Um, it looks a lot like someone letting a dog off of a lead at a dog park. Unfortunately, yeah. it kind of really does. Um, it's, it's a hard image to look at, but it is important because it was the way that people were trying to uh, visually represent this story and this historic moment. But then we see other examples, like with John Quincy Adams' Ward's The Freedmen, where Lincoln is nowhere to be found. And although this person is also minimally clothed, at least he's emancipating himself. He's not kneeling like the figure that we saw earlier in the John Whittier Greenleaf print that's by Hugh Hayden's work. He's not on a block standing with his head down in the Emil Caldwater Guild sculpture that's also right across the gallery from our case. And so that I think is one of the reasons why the Freedman is just such a special figure and, and such a special work to be the center of the show. The other Lincoln statue is also interesting because you like not just pervasive for that time but for like modern time how much mm -hmm. that image and what that represents and how it comes across like just historically and artistically like that's still what people think of. Mm -hmm upsetting in a good way makes you think more? It does, it does, and I, I hope that as folks sort of learn more about Lincoln's opinion and position on enslavement and that if he could have reunited the Union and the Confederacy without abolishing enslavement, he would have, um, and that his feelings on the matter were a bit more ambivalent than we remember, or, or as we were taught, um, that they look at these images differently. And, and I do think the question could be raised, well, why have Lincoln in the show at all? And I think we sort of have to, because his name is so deftly tied to emancipation as a term and as an idea. It's Lincoln the Emancipator, Lincoln the Liberator, um, and we wanted to think about that and to maybe try to complicate that sentiment a bit and to perhaps put the um, responsibility and the sort of success of emancipation on the large group of people who were part of making that possible, which also included the fighting 54th Massachusetts Regiment of Volunteer Infantry. And we have a little moment about them in the gallery space that is the next one we're going to. <laughs> we'll check out a few of the larger sculptures that are a part of the exhibit Emancipation at the Williams College of Art, a Museum of Art, a little later in the show. And we'll discover the murky <laughs> ties of Western Mass to both bondage and freedom with archivist and local historian Cliff McCarthy as he tells us about Jupiter Richards and Angeline Palmer. Next, however, we'll get into the graces of gratitude with word nerd Emily Brewster and a listener question about the phrase, you're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> you're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. 
Emily Rooster, resident wordster from Merriam-Webster, our dictionary in Springfield. Another listener email. This one from D. Michelle. Hi, Fab413 folks. I have a question for the Merriam-Webster word expert. It's similar to your recent marvelous discussion of ER versus more, where the writer lamented the change from one to the other. I've noticed hardly anyone says, you're welcome on the radio anymore. Maybe one in 20 or so use or uses this venerable response to a thank you. The regular response to thank you now seems to be a thank you right back. The exchange often occurs when a correspondent is interviewing someone. Has our word expert noticed this trend? It's more of a discourse issue than a vocabulary one, I suppose. Thanks a lot, D. Michelle. P.S. You may remember me as the guy who had a show tunes show on WMUA, and I do remember he wrote a book about, um, I can't remember the name of the book, but it was awesome, and it was all about Broadway musicals and about the queerness of Broadway, and it was a, a fun book, and maybe, D. Michelle, we should have you on the show to talk about that. That would be awesome. Maybe when the Tonys are coming around or something, but... What's your response, Emily Brewster, to D. Michelle's query about the uh, less frequent use of your welcome, especially on the radio? Yeah, I, I have noticed this also, and I'm very curious about what you two think about it. But first, I want to say that as I was looking into this question, one of the first things I came across was a column by Miss Manners answering exactly this question. Wow. From when? This column was published in December 2023. Okay, so it's wow. very, very, very recent. Okay. She says, uh, you know, the person is, you know, curious about when a TV guest is said, thank you for being on the show. And they reply, thank you. Why don't they say you're welcome? And she says, she very kindly says, gentle reader, which I, I love her for that. <laughs> Actually, there's a lot of thanking that goes on in news programs and interview shows. For example, anchors thank their correspondents, which is more than Miss Manners recalls newspaper editors doing when reporters handed in their copy. <laughs> but it is an awkward situation. Don't you think that your welcome would sound as if the correspondents had done the anchors a favor? Mm. It is sort of the same with so-called guests as the opportunity to sound off on television is considered a boon, return thanks are better than you're welcome. For that matter, the situation is similar with real guests in ordinary social life. But then it is the guests who thank the hosts first, and you're welcome would not sound quite right, so the hosts just say how delighted they were to have the guests. I feel like this response is um, it's, it's, it's doing a lot of things about this category of intercourse and how we communicate appreciation to one another in these situations. Do you have a preference, Emily Brewster, when people say thank you? Do you say you're welcome? Or when you say thank you, do you want them to say you're welcome? It depends on the situation. Mm -hmm. I, I definitely feel like no problem is less formal than you're welcome. But I want to I want to stay first with the area of this kind of communication that you two are experts in. What do you think about saying you're welcome? You know, is that what you think a guest like me, for example, should say? No. No. It feels weird. It feels like, like there's some sort of favor that we haven't quite put a finger on that you're doing us. It feels weird. Not that you're not doing us a favor. No. No. <laughs> and it's not that. It's that, I don't know, there's something really pretentious feeling about it. And I think maybe that's just modern era. Yeah, I don't know if I say you're welcome hardly at all in any circumstance at this point. I say you're very welcome, but it's usually in like the same context that I would have replied with thank you in response to whatever was happening. Yeah, I feel like I use you're welcome only when it's 
very clear that I have kind of gone gone above and beyond. And I feel like this person is really expecting, like they're, they're showing maybe a, a greater level of appreciation for something. And so the, the you're welcome seems appropriate in that case. Yes. Like the scope yeah. of what you're saying you're welcome for is important for when I actually used you're welcome. Like if it's it, like, Emily, like you're saying, was something really big. Like I went out of my way. I canceled plans. Like I bought things in another state yeah. and brought them to you. <laughs> like that's when you get a you're welcome. Because like I clearly went on a whole journey to try and make you happy. But if it's just like us hanging out, like we finally got together, I'm going to say thank you for coming over. And you don't have to say you're welcome. It's just sort of like yeah. awesome. I'm glad to be here. There's a big conversation about just this topic also on TikTok, and there was a big hullabaloo about it with a big divide between Australian speakers of English and American speakers of English. Oh, and apparently it was an Austra some Australian TikToker. They were outraged and posted a video about how they had said to a server in a restaurant in the in the U.S., "Thank you, like thank you for bringing over the ketchup," and the server had said, "Mm-hmm." Oh. <laughs> and this person was livid. I was like, oh, can I please get some ketchup with that, please? Mind you, we, we call it tomato sauce. You know, it's, it's just the right way to say it. Just like, oh, for sure, for sure. Like, here you go. Like, oh, thank you. And she just goes, mm-hmm. And I was like, I beg your pardon. Like, I asked for two ketchup sachets, not 17 burgers, gluten-free with cheese on the side and your left arm. Like, I'm sorry, I didn't know that was a big ask. I was just so <laughs> offended. Like, what mm-hmm is an appropriate response, except it did it with an Australian accent, of course, which I'm not going to do. I don't know how to um, make an mm-hmm with an Australian accent. <laughs> no, I meant the other part. I will admit that I have said thank you and had an mm-hmm in reply to my thank you that, that did not feel good. Felt yeah. like super dismissive. Yeah. But in this, in all this, there's a lot of back and forth, a lot of people commenting on this TikTok video. And a common theme from US speakers was that your welcome feels passive aggressive. <laughs> that it 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 somehow implies that the person should be thanking them. Oh my. And that they've gone to a lot of trouble. When they say thank you, if you say you're welcome, you're making it sound like, yeah, you should you should be appreciating me because I just brought that ketchup from all the way over there. And that saying no problem or even with the right intonation, some kind of mm-hmm is actually a more gracious reply. <laughs> wow. That's that, a hot take in my opinion. But... I mean, that's literally what I just said. What? I know, Khalees. <laughs> I'm yeah, playing yeah. right into their hands. Yeah. But I feel well, like the real lesson the here is never underestimate thing. how casual that Americans can make things. Mm -hmm. Well, I think there's a generational divide probably, but there's no doubt that English in the past 20 years has become markedly less formal. And it's really interesting to me that in Australia and apparently in Great Britain also, this same trend is not, it's not moving at the same pace. And usually we get all kinds of informalisms from Australia. So this is also an unusual shift in, in my understanding of how these things go. I think using your welcome as a, a preemptive strike is passive aggressive, but just saying you're welcome 
it seems wrong that people would read that as passive aggressive. Well, I mean, there's also the shift recently in like just adding it to sentences like I did this and this and this and this got done and you're welcome. That's what I mean as a preemptive strike where you're just right. nobody said thank you. You just offer your welcome right. out there. That's definitely passive right. aggressive. That might like, be border aggressive aggressive. Yeah, but I think like that <laughs> shift in using it that way is very much a modern thing. Yeah. And so kind of preemptively informs us thinking that it's passive aggressive. Because of Moana. It's not. What can I say except you're welcome? You know, you know that song from <laughs> that's Moana? Way too, yes. I like that's that. way too recent. I like I that think song. That's though. just putting an end cap on it. Yeah. Then there is also the situation where someone um, not in writing, you know, like Khalees, your example, it's just a different version of that. But have you ever been, maybe when you were a child, maybe I've even done this to my own children. I don't know if I have. I probably have. You know, I, I do something and they don't say the thank you. And so I say, you're welcome. Yeah. Again, preemptive. <laughs> right? Yeah, preemptive again. But in this case, it's, it's actually... Well, no, I guess it's the same kind of preemption, right? It's saying like, I, I am expecting some kind of gratitude expression here. And um, where is it? It puts this color on the on the phrase itself that is maybe making it increasingly problematic for people. The phrase, you're welcome, how, how long do you think it's been used as a response to an expression of gratitude? Any ideas? 300 years. I think a no. little bit longer than that. I'm thinking pre-Shakespeare, but not much. Tell us, Emily Brewster. All right. I just found out. I, I messaged my colleague, Ammon, who you've had on the show before. He's very good at this kind of research. He's very quick at it. The earliest example that he could find was from 1843. Wow. Oh, real new. 1843. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It is really new. Now, the word welcome dates all the way back to Old English. It comes from a word, vilkuma, meaning desirable guest. Willkommen, bienvenue. And in English, it first functioned as a noun. It appears in Beowulf. A welcome was a, a person you're happy to see or a person you're happy to have visit. That person would be a welcome to you. By the 12th century, there had developed the adjectival use that we have in phrases like, oh, a welcome visitor. And, you know, you make a person welcome. And then the other uses kind of developed from there. But, you know, that's a bunch of years quite a few centuries between the first adjectival meaning. When you're saying you're welcome, it is an adjectival meaning, right? It, it's a way of, you know, communicates a willingness to accept a favor that someone has done or, or given. That's where the meaning of welcome connects in there. It doesn't function that way anymore. Now it just means, it just is a thing you say. It has taken on a new life as a phrase, you're welcome. But the welcomeness has to do with a willingness to accept a favor. And it's only like 150 something, 170 years old. That's crazy. 181. Uh, wow. Congratulations, Math Wiz. I was so far off. Um, <laughs> well, and you're, this you're is welcome. actually, I'm sure you're it's, it, it's, uh, it's older. This is just the first example from, from written text that Ammon was able to find in short order. So what, uh, it's probably at least you know, 20 years older than that in spoken English. So yeah. what did and, people uh, used to say after somebody said thank you, or did they even say thank you? Before that time, what was a proper retort? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you hear that, Australia? That was a great callback. Actually, I'm going to look this up, and we haven't talked about this recently, I don't think, but there is a fantastic resource that you can get through your library, probably. The Oxford English Dictionary is a fantastic dictionary. Their entry for welcome hasn't been updated recently, and the earliest evidence they have of your welcome is from 1960. But also at the OED website, there is this 
outrageously amazing work called the historical thesaurus of the OED. And you can type something into the thesaurus database and see what synonyms were used before that. Ooh. So. Historical thesaurus is just fun to say. It is absolutely astounding sometimes. It's really, really great. Welcome, Matt. Dates to 1951, by the way. Okay, cool. You're welcome, Matt. So how do you reply to thank you nowadays outside of your welcome, Monty? Me? Yeah. I just say thank you. Maybe I say you're welcome, too. I'm overthinking it now. I realize that I say happy to help you more say, often than not. You say sure. I do say sure. When I but, say to Congressman McGovern, thanks as always, Congressman, at the end of our conversation every week, he always says, all the best, be safe, Aww. which is kind of interesting. All the best, be safe. All the best, be safe. All the best, be safe. I love it. <laughs> it's like a good tag to a letter. Yeah. I realized when I started, when the rendezvous first opened, I bartended there sometimes, and I found myself not intentionally answering thank you with sure thing. I don't know where it came from. I like that. I think you still say that, actually. Oh, do I? Yeah. I might. I'm afraid that the historical thesaurus has failed us in this case. It does not have this, um, it it doesn't have information about what is used synonymously. Suffice it to say, from our letter writer, Dee Michelle, who is somewhat concerned that radio hosts in particular aren't saying you're welcome or radio guests aren't saying you're welcome to the response, thank you. Uh, this is a relatively new phenomenon. It's a little bit older than radio itself, but not much. But I still feel like the exchange of thank you for being on the show and the reply of thank you for having me, which is usually how that goes, is totally acceptable. Maybe you should say, I feel welcome. Thank <laughs> you for being say, on the show. I, I, feel I welcome. felt welcome here. I did feel welcome to be on this show. Then we'll get a Thank you for re- welcoming me. That sounds like there an AI go. response. Thank you for welcoming <laughs> me covers all the bases. I like that. We should try to incorporate that into this segment every time. If you happen to be a listener like D. Michelle and would like your questions about the English language answered by Emily Brewster, resident wordster from Merriam Webster, our dictionary in Springfield, you're welcome to submit an email to thefab413 at nepm.org, and we'll do our best to ask your question to the word nerd. Thank you, Emily Brewster. You're welcome, Monty Belmonte. Thank you for having me. I already forgot what we were going to say at the end of all of them. I feel welcome. Huh? Thank you for welcoming us. Thank you for welcoming us. me. Thank you for welcoming us as hosts. See, it feels yeah. weird already. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for being a guest. Thank yes. you for being, being a, a friend. Guest. Now we've gone total golden girls. Travel down the road and back again. Love it. Your heart is true. You're a pal and a confidant. Anyway. Bum, bum. And if you threw a party. <laughs> I really do know all the words to that Andrew Gold song. <laughs> now it's time to delve into local black history with archivist Cliff McCarthy. And perhaps we'll even learn how you, yes, you, can also help preserve and even discover stories like these yourself. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. You may have heard last week on the show about the Documenting Black Lives in the Early Connecticut River Valley Project from Clark University professor Usman Power Green. 
Cliff McCarthy is an archivist at the Lyman and Mary Wood Museum of Springfield History and at the Stone House Museum in Belchertown. He's also vice president of the Pioneer Valley History Network, a consortium of the region's historical institutions, museums, libraries, and historical societies, and is also working on the Documenting Black Lives in the Early Connecticut River Valley Project. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. I want to hear a little bit more about the Pioneer Valley History Network writ large, but first, let's start with this project that we heard from Usman Green about, and he told us a little bit of the story that got you interested in this project, the story of Angeline Palmer. Yeah, really sad and interesting story. I think it illuminates a little bit about the history that's largely been erased uh, about African Americans in the Valley. Angeline Palmer was a freeborn black woman. Actually, she was a girl. Her mother died when she was about two. She lived in Amherst and became a ward of the town of Amherst. And as was typical in those days, the town of Amherst hired her out to work as a servant girl or learn to be a servant girl in the home of uh, Mason Shaw and his family who lived in Belchertown. The house still exists. It's on Park Street in Belchertown. And um, Mason Shaw, who was the father in the family, became very involved in the silkworm mulberry fad, which was a a business opportunity for him in in the early 1830s. And early it was like 40s, the IPA 40s. beer brewing of its time. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Here in Western Massachusetts. Exactly. And he got involved so much that he was he moved to Georgia and was selling mulberry trees in Georgia. And his wife came back to Belchertown for a summer, which makes sense if you've ever known the summer in Georgia. <laughs> and um, while she was here, he wrote to her saying that he thought if she came down and brought Angeline with her to Georgia, he could sell her for $600 into slavery. And when she received this letter, she read it as they used to do around the family um, in the parlor. And one of the other servants in the household heard them talk about this, and she was quite alarmed about the idea. And so she went and talked to her friends in Amherst and tried to get the Amherst Select Board to um, intervene because they still controlled, um, as wards of, of Angeline, they controlled her future. But they refused to get involved. And so it inspired three young African-American men from Amherst, Henry Jackson, William Jennings, and Louis Frazier, to rescue her. And they went to Belchertown in a cart, broke into the Shaw's house, um, grabbed Angeline, knocked over uh, Mrs. Shaw while she was there, and escaped, absconded with her. Did, um, did Angeline have any idea what was going on or why these people so. were coming in the, to kidnap her? <laughs> I, mean, I, I can imagine that would be as traumatic as the idea well, that she was what was about to befall her. Well, she knew Louis Frazier. Louis Frazier uh-huh. was a relative. Okay. Um, so uh, she trusted him. I see. And I think that she was probably too young to be aware of all of the intricacies of what was happening to her, but I think that she trusted Frazier and went with him. And they sped to Amherst in this cart, and they, in their haste, they passed the sheriff who pulled them over <laughs> and gave them a lecture about going too fast. Now, the sheriff recognized these men, and he trusted them. Little did they know that they were kidnapping this woman. But um, but for a good reason. <laughs> yep, but all for a good reason. But they managed to talk their way into um, proceeding, and they managed to get Angeline first to Amherst and then up to Coleraine, where she was boarded with a, an ally up there. She was underground at that moment, but she was at least not going to 
to be um, sold into slavery. I think getting pulled over for speeding in the 19th century <laughs> is like George W. Bush getting pulled over for drunk driving in the 1970s. I mean, that's that's an achievement. I know it seems a little Fast and Furious as yeah, but like horse cart edition. Fast and Furious horse cart. <laughs> horse cart, right? I love. It. We're speaking so, with Cliff McCarthy, who is a historian and an archivist at the Springfield Museums, about one of the stories that are part of the documenting Black Lives in the early Connecticut River Valley project. Yeah, actually, Angeline's story is not on that website. It's on another website um, called the Freedom Stories of the Pioneer Valley. Uh-huh. Which is a, a story is a website that has thirteen or so of these stories. These are stories that represent African Americans who achieved their freedom in remarkable ways. Angeline's is the one story on the website involving a a person who was not born into slavery. I should just say as a, a tail end to that that story that the three men who uh, who abducted her were taken to court and tried, and they were convicted and told that um, they would be given their freedom if they would tell where Angeline was. Wow. And they refused to do that. And they served several months in the in the Northampton jail. And um, when they were released, they were considered heroes, actually. Um, the newspapers sang their praises and said they did the right thing, and they blamed the Amherst Select Board for not having done anything. And they were quite well thought of for that for that adventure. Another story that I know that you worked on is the story of Jupiter Richards. Mm. Can you tell us a little bit about Jupiter Richards? Absolutely. Jupiter Richards was an American hero. Um, he fought for seven years on and off in the American Revolution, which is how he uh, obtained his freedom. He signed up while he was enslaved, but was a substitute probably for his owner, and his owner claimed his bounty. In those days, you got a bounty when you enlisted in the in service, and um, he didn't get to keep his bounty, but he did get his freedom that way, and was considered a resident of Bridgewater for the early part of his life and while he was serving. And um, after the war, he came to Springfield and. He actually had a second family here in Springfield and um, went to work at the armory, which was the the arsenal back then. And um, there's records of him there. There's records of him in the um, the account books of a store that was next to the, the armory where he would purchase his goods. And um, somewhere along the way, he was accused of pilfering a barrel of rye, which was worth three shillings. And he was brought to, to trial for that. He he pled guilty and was charged an exorbitant, what seems to me an exorbitant amount of court costs and restitution. And um, he couldn't afford to pay that, of course. And at that point, a Revolutionary War former officer in the, in the Continental Army by the name of Samuel Flower, um, who lived in West Springfield, ran a tavern there, stepped in and said that he would pay Jupiter's court costs and all of the fines and everything if Jupiter would go to work for him which he did. Jupiter then went to, to work for Flower in West Springfield, but the contract that he signed had him in servitude for 20 years. Wow. Now, Jupiter's 40-something years old at this point, so he's really living out the balance of his productive life in what was essentially forced servitude. You know, we talk about um, in the last uh, decade or so, uh, there's been a lot of attention given to the convict labor situation in the South where Southern landowners um, needed to keep cheap labor and they had an incentive to keep black people 
incarcerated in bizarre ways and for long periods of time so they could get cheap labor to work their land. Well, this just shows that that convict labor system was not invented by them. It actually had, there was a version of it that was here as soon after the, the Revolutionary War. Jupiter, however, got the last laugh. Sometime around 1794, the newspapers carried a, an ad, a runaway ad, as they call them, trying to find Jupiter Richards, who apparently had achieved his freedom again. <laughs> <laughs> Are you finding all of these things in the old archives of, say, the Springfield Republican or whatever it was called at the time? We find them everywhere. Yeah. I mean, it, it's really the official records, African-Americans are underrepresented and they're, they're not represented the same way that um, white people were in the records. But we find evidence of their lives in all kinds of places, in the deed books as property, sadly. We find them uh, records in the church records. We find some of them here in the north. We find them in the vital records. Occasionally, you'll find marriage, indications of marriage or ch childbirth or whatever. And one of the great things about that documenting early Black Lives Project that, that Usman was involved with and we were involved with was that it, it made us go into the archives and, and do a deep dive, find the records that we would not normally look at um, for evidence of people of color. And I have to say, it was really illuminating. And, it, and we would find these little bits of information that were kind of like breadcrumbs. They would lead us to another another breadcrumb somewhere mm. else. And when we were lucky, it didn't always happen, but sometimes we could form a bigger picture, a, a mosaic, if you will, of that person's life. Can't wait to hear more of these stories from you, Cliff, and the rest of your uh, Pioneer Valley History Network as well, the, network the show has progresses. Well, the has a, a big event coming up in May. Oh. And I actually brought you a, a flyer so you can um, prepare for it. Oh, good. <laughs> but um, on May 4th, um, we're going to be doing History Fest, Pioneer Valley. Is it the at, history of um, Star Wars? Because May the 4th yeah, is no, Star Wars. Yeah, no. We picked that date knowing that that was going <laughs> to We'll probably get some reenactors or something to show up. But. At least you were aware that it was going to. It, it's it is on the a docket. long time ago in we, a galaxy. Far, that's far that's away. right, right. Yeah. And we did laugh about that when we, we picked that date, but that was not the strategic reason. Well, we can't wait to hear about that. We'll have you back yep. on to talk about that as that event gets closer. Absolutely. Great. That'll be fun. It's a, it's a great conference with um, local historians of all stripes, and it'll be great. Local historian Cliff McCarthy, who is an archivist at the Springfield Museums. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This has been great. Speaking of John Williams, we'll highlight a completely different John Williams, who was a major figure in another historical event that we'll take a look at on tomorrow's show, the Deerfield Raid. Let's head back to the Berkshires to take one last look at Emancipation, the new exhibit at the Williams College Museum of Art with curator Destiny Fillmore. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. We're continuing our tour of Emancipation, the new exhibit at the Williams College Museum of Art with the curator, Destiny Fillmore. Thank you. Um, so when you walk into the gallery we renamed Crow, the Crow Gallery, you're greeted by an incredibly large, vibrant, colorful installation by the artist Maya Freelon. But I encourage you to just take a quick look before you go to Maya's work um, at this discreet collection of objects that are um, all thinking about black soldiers and the 54th Massachusetts <laughs> 
Massachusetts <laughs> regiment uh, in particular. So we've got these two uh, August Saint Godin heads from the Shaw Memorial. And this is a very special um, sort of set of objects to have because we can see one, the, the artist's process and practice of rendering very particular individual facial details for this memorial, which was not the conventional approach to creating memorials at this scale at this time. Usually you sort of have just this general miscellaneous soldier face. Um, but instead, it was really important for this artist to actually visualize the faces of the people who were involved in this um, infantry. We've got two prints on the wall. One is a Thomas Nast print, which would have been found in somebody's copy of Harper's Bazaar, actually, um, in, 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 this, uh, in the 1860s. And I think that that's really fascinating. And then there's the P.S. Duval and Son, really, I think, famous image of um, this group of soldiers with their leader, Robert Gould Shaw, who was the commanding officer for the unit. And so I think that the 54th might be best remembered for their sacrifice at Fort Wagner in Charleston, South Carolina, where 600 of them uh, participated, 300 of them were captured, declared missing, or died from their wounds. And this was sort of commemorated and, and made uh, visual in the movie Glory, uh, starring Denzel Washington. Yeah. I was looking to <laughs> see it. And Morgan Freeman. I'm sorry, Morgan Freeman. <laughs> I was looking to see if either of those look like Denzel. I mean, this guy, he looks a little Morgan Freeman ish with the, yeah, the, with the, the mustache. Yeah, yeah, but, but no, no young Denzel. Um, <laughs> um, but what, what's interesting and what Maggie uh, highlights when she talks about the section of the exhibition is that when these soldiers enlisted, they were not receiving equal pay, actually. They were receiving $7 compared to the $13 monthly made by their white counterparts. And in an act of, I suppose, civil disobedience or maybe union organizing, they refused payment until they were actually giving the right and equal pay that they were entitled to as, as soldiers in the Union Army. That's one thing that's really significant about their, their story that, that gets, um, I think, a little less attention. And uh, as I mentioned before, it was important for us in doing um, this iteration of the show here in Williamstown to think about the history of enslavement in Massachusetts um, and also the way that we may or may not have been directly connected to the 54th Regiment. We discovered by doing research that actually 82 enlistees for the regiment came from the Upper Housatonic Valley, and that two of them came from Williamstown, Massachusetts, our, our very own home. And one of them was named William Porter, and he was a painter and a musician. And it was so uh, exciting to be able to see the name of this person and to be able to remember him and to sort of immortalize his contribution in text for this exhibition. Um, so that was ex incredibly exciting. But also, um, my research showed me, um, and I learned very surprisingly that enslavement was abolished in the state of Massachusetts in 1781, and that that happened because of the legal action of Elizabeth Mumbet Freeman and Quack Walker, and these were two enslaved people who essentially sued for their freedom, and they won. And they used the language that was in the Massachusetts state constitution as a rationale for their freedom. And so as soon as the constitution is ratified, it's actively being tried and tested to see if it actually will hold up to what it says, and, and, and it did. And so that really opened my eyes to, to think about um, the history of enslavement in a different way. I come from the South, my undergraduate education was in the South, and so that's the context that I best know this history. And so it was so illuminating to, to find out that a black woman and a black man were responsible for the freedom and the freeing of people all across the state of Massachusetts. Um, and that the work was never done, and, and of course the experiences that people had even after that were, were different, and there was also of course active and passive acts of 
discrimination um, and that later on the sort of incredibly progressive environment that was Boston transformed into something different sort of in a response to progressivist politics that were meant to even the playing ground one would say and so it really did change the way that I understand the legacies of enslavement and emancipation here in the state of Massachusetts and that was incredibly important for us to remember um, as we put on the show here in Williamstown. The sculpture that you're seeing, its title is Float, and it's from Alfred Conti's um, Tetanus series. And so this work itself, it's sort of a representation of, of what happens to one's body when it's poisoned. The tendrils that you see in their bulbous ends, they replicate what happens to our blood when we're poisoned. And there are these stigmata on the hands and feet of this figure that's kind of floating ethereally. And I think it's interesting, and that dovetails with Alfred's interest in investigating the way that systemic inequity um, is a poison in our society and how it invariably impacts people of African descent, especially those who are the descendants of enslaved folks. And that the decision to include this work in the exhibition was partially for want to have um, a representation in sculpture of, of a female figure. Everyone else is, is a male figure, unclothed except for Abraham Lincoln. He's got, uh. <laughs> he's got clothes on. Um, and so this is this one representation um, and meditation on, on the same themes that uh, the other works in the show are engaged with, but in a, in a totally different form. And it's meant to intentionally rust and, and sort of change color. And the patina of the rust, you can see it's, it's turning blue and this really rich, deep brownish red. And, and I think it's so fascinating to stare at and a little um, entrancing. I, I hope no one touches it. Uh, and gets tetanus on accident. Yeah. <laughs> it's not called tetanus yeah. for no reason. Then you become the art. Then you yeah. become the tetanus series. I just got my shot last okay. year, so I think I'm good. You're good. <laughs> okay, we're all, we're all good. The painting that we're standing in front of is monumental. It's humongous, and that was part of our thought process in bringing it here so that it could really take up all the space that it requires because of its grand scale. And the image that we're seeing is a black man who is embracing his three young sons, um, and they all are looking directly at us. These gazes are very um, intent, and they are being protected by, covered by, um, uh, maybe even um, hindered by, but, but I'd say protected by two symbols that create an X in the middle of the composition. One is a shovel, which I think is meant to symbolize um, the toiling of the land and engagement with agricultural practices that is very much a part of the life of black Southerners, especially those who continue agricultural work as farmers. And then there's also a rifle uh, and, and a gun. And this is, I think, a nod to, one, the pervasive use of weapons of this size and scale to harm communities in places of worship, in places of education, in places of leisure but also it's, it's sort of thinking about it as a potentially protective tool against um, these other systems of oppression. But it's, it's such a powerful image. I think the boys are so cute yeah. <laughs> and, and so darling. That little guy right there. It's, yeah. so, it's so great. And the same kind of um, like degradation and, like, and, and, and gritty feel to the sculpture of Alfred Conte that we see is also at play here in the painting. It's a very physical and, and embodied and involved painting that I think feels close and sort of manipulative 
manipulated nature to Maya Freeland's work, which is right across the way. And it's big <laughs> and it's colorful. What, what did you all think when you first came in and saw it? I love it. I mean, it's fun. It mm-hmm. looks like they're almost like a Chinese dragon coming out of the wall. Mm-hmm. And then these, uh, a Grateful Dead concert with all sorts of uh, <laughs> people making tie-dyes hung yeah. up against the other wall. Over there. That is like the Grateful Dead. I didn't think I'm, about that before. Yeah. I like it better than the Grateful <laughs> Dead. Yeah. Don't think about um, and outside of the pink glitter walls, this, this is the first pop of color you mm-hmm. get in the whole gallery. Yeah, exactly. And, and that was partially um, due to sort of circumstances of, of, of necessity <laughs> in that Maya's work is so big and, and bold that it really asked and, and begged for its own space. And so we had the opportunity to extend the exhibition into this gallery. The piece that looks like a Chinese dragon is, is actually a quilt made out of tissue paper. And Maya started to engage with tissue paper when she discovered a box of what tissue paper um, that were part of this, this, um, these art materials that her grandmother had collected in her basement, I believe, that was flooded. And she saw the way that the colors were swirling and the beautiful patterns that emerged and immediately uh, felt attracted to this as a medium and sort of never looked back. And so she's engaging with these um, histories of African-American quilt making, which use discards, flower sacks, um, old clothes, and bolts of of fabric that were decommissioned from textile mills or other factories to create quilts to warm oneself. And so it's, it's a very fun and vibrant work. And part of that is because Maya's approach to thinking about what emancipation or freedom means is really the ability to live the life that you want and to do the things that you want to do. And so we're looking at this flag wall that she's created to be in a way its own kind of kinetic sculpture. Um, the air from the vents are, are making them move, but I think Maya imagined that as people sort of went back and forth and, and played and, and, and ran, uh, not ran, uh, and, and moved and moved, <laughs> please don't run, and moved uh, nearby the, the, the flag wall that it would uh, come alive and engage with them. So this is the third iteration of this, mm-hmm. this exhibit. Was this part of the exhibit intentionally put near the vents so that it could do that? Because the air moving from the vents, if that's not an intentional choice should probably be in the future. That's kind of yeah, well, yeah. It was totally intentional. Exactly <laughs> with that. Again, I think it's very um, apt for us to end at this expression of liberation and freedom. This is free use of color and, and material, but it is also, of course, thinking about and really deeply engaging with like the wildest imaginations of the enslaved peoples that Maya and many of the artists in the show are descended from. It's really just this vibrant, lively expression of life and, and freedom. I think that that's the whole point of the show. Emancipation will be up at the Williams College of Museum of Art through the middle of July, and there's so much there that we didn't get to with Destiny. But once again, thank you to her and the museum for helping us put all of that together. Find more information about the collection at artmuseums.williams.edu. Tomorrow on The Fabulous 413, it's the 320th anniversary of the Deerfield Raid, and we'll look at the historic event with author and historian James Swanson, who's just released a book on the subject, and with Deerfield Memorial Hall Museum curators Lindsay Kruzlik and Ray Radigan, who've updated their exhibit about it. Yeah, we get to look at a giant door. There is a giant door at the center of the exhibit. A lot of nails nailed into it. Talk a lot about tomorrow on the show. (laughs) And we'll have our weekly chat with Congressman Jim McGovern. Got a question for the congressman? You can always email us at thefab413 at nepm.org, and we'll ask him. And this is the same email address you can ask, uh, like Dee Michelle did, about 
you're welcome, the question that we asked the Word Nerd today. So you can send your Word Nerd questions there as well. You're welcome in advance. <laughs> I'm Monty Belmonte. I'm Cleese Smith. Thanks to the tireless, fabulous 413 Tech team, and we'll see you tomorrow. When you were waddling, yay, hide this guy. When the nights got cold, who stole you fire from down below? <laughs> Look at him, yo. Oh, also I love